You're listening to Horizon Radio. I uh, went back to my apartment, and you could see the trail of blood where I fell in front of my building to where I was hit. And it was just so surreal to see that. Uh, and that ended up being kind of a transformative experience for me. After being mugged on the way home, Dr. Anthony Waters made some decisions about his career path that might surprise you. In this episode, we'll hear about that experience and how it influences the work he does today. Welcome to Horizon Health Radio. Today I have with me Dr. Anthony Waters, Senior Vice President of Behavioral Health Operations. Dr. Waters, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure thing. Wanted to kick it off and ask you how you got into your current role. Well, I've, I've spent about the past decade working at the intersection of uh, behavioral health and law enforcement, and uh, I never anticipated doing that. And so I think there's actually two ways I can answer that question. There's a short answer and a long answer. Okay. The, shor- the short answer is that my father was a retired criminal justice professor and my mother was a clinical social worker. So I feel like I was kind of bred to work in, uh, in the space. Uh, but I actually never anticipated doing that. When I was in grad school, I figured I'd get a nice small private practice in some little New England town and have an office attached to my home and see patients on a day-to-day basis, pretty low key. But then during grad school, I had uh, an experience that totally transformed my professional trajectory. While I was out with friends, this was in my first year of grad school, I was out with friends for a few drinks at the end of a long week. And as I was walking home, uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I took a little shortcut down an alley to the front of my apartment building. This was probably about 12:30, 1 a.m., so it was pretty late at night, but I was so familiar with the area, I didn't think twice about it. And as I was walking down that alley, somebody jumped out from behind a dumpster and hit me in the back of the head with uh, a metal pipe or baseball bat. I couldn't see exactly what it was. Knocked me uh, a few feet forward. I turned around, and he hit me a second time and knocked me to the ground. I was still with it enough to recognize that he was after my wallet, and so I pulled my wallet out, I threw it to him, and I said, just take it and leave. And he did, fortunately. And uh, I was able to sort of get myself up to my feet and brace myself against the side of my building and walk to the front of the building where eventually I fell. Uh, Within moments, there were a number of people around me. They called the police, they called the ambulance, and I was carted off to the hospital where, you know, I was uh, diagnosed with a pretty serious concussion and stayed in the hospital overnight. And when I was released in the morning, I uh, went back to my apartment, and you could see the trail of blood where I fell in front of my building to where I was hit. And it was just so surreal to see that. Uh, and that ended up being kind of a transformative experience for me. I, I was pretty dissatisfied with the way uh, my case was handled through the criminal justice system. And I realized that the person who assaulted me must have been in in an incredibly desperate place to have done so. Uh, And so then when I came to New York to finish my doctorate degree, I saw an opportunity with the NYPD to do evaluations of people who wanted to become police officers. 
to determine whether or not they had the psychological profile necessary to be successful in the role. That seems like an opportunity for me to take ownership over what had been a pretty uh, negative and potentially traumatizing experience to say, listen, now I can determine who gets to do these kind of investigations, whether or not they have the psychological fortitude to perform the job admirably. What I found after doing a couple of thousand of those evaluations was that the NYPD was by and large an interpersonally competent, successful organization, and it became a little monotonous. And where do you go from the NYPD to try to influence change in the criminal justice system but corrections? And so that led me to Rikers Island, where I spent just about the next decade working within the Behavioral Health Service, trying to influence the direction of behavioral health care uh, within the 12 jails of uh, New York City. And through that experience, I, I was able to make significant change with my colleagues, and uh, I moved up into successive positions of uh, responsibility and authority before ultimately then uh, seeing this position with Corizon as a Senior Vice President of Behavioral Health, which I applied for, and, and now consider myself extremely fortunate to have been able to join the team. Your story is so interesting because somebody could have looked at your situation, you know, as, as you got hurt and were concussed and say, I'm out, these people are crazy, uh, I don't want to help anybody that's going to hurt me. So great work. Kudos to you for continuing to help other people because you realize that they were in a desperate situation. That that just blows me away. So thank you for sharing that. I was just going to add that it became a process of ownership for me. You can either be subjected to your experiences or master them. And for me, it was an opportunity out of crisis. And uh, I feel really fortunate to have been able to craft a path that allowed me to influence the systems that had failed the person who assaulted me. Could you walk us through a day in your life? It seems like you have so much going on with, you know, how many different people that you see in different locations. How do you manage all of that? Well, uh, so I, I work remotely out of my home in Brooklyn, New York, uh, which I should say is less of a home and more of a shoebox, about <laughs> 600 square feet and in a really fun neighborhood here in Brooklyn called Greenpoint. Uh, and so it begins with me starting here. One of the things that's really difficult about my job is because I work remote, I don't get the opportunity to spend time in the jails and prisons the way that I'd like. And so, you know, I have, I have team members all throughout the country, and we're in very frequent communication about both the day-to-day -day happenings in their areas as well as the administrative and programmatic needs that they have. Treating behavioral health patients, treating behavioral health needs and corrections is extremely challenging. And so we're confronted with a lot of really unique problems that aren't seen in other areas of healthcare. Uh, and it means that we get to be really creative in coming up with solutions. And that's one of the most exciting parts of my job. We're not just keeping the ship afloat, but we're also trying to find new solutions to unique problems that improve the care for our patients and hopefully also make it easier for our staff to deliver that care. When you said that some of the patients that you see or hear about from your colleagues out in the field, that they have maybe some sort of different behavioral health issues that you've never seen before, can you give me an example of one? Sure. So it's it's really about the, the behavioral health need intersecting with the environment. Okay. 
So we know that about 60% of the people in jails and about 40 to 50% of the people in prisons have a diagnosable mental disorder. That's really incredible. And, and that means that the degree or the seriousness of their disorder runs really across the entire spectrum from relatively uh, uh, low-level pathology to really serious disorders like schizophrenia or mm-hmm. bipolar disorder. And so our staff have to be equipped to treat any type of mental disorder that comes into the institution, and they have to be ready to do it in this environment that is oftentimes punitive or controlling and doesn't prioritize health. And, it, you know, when I say that, I don't mean that it's intentionally creating this really tough dynamic, but that's just the way correctional institutions are set up. They have to be instruments of control to maintain safety and security. But as behavioral health professionals, that makes it really challenging because we want our patients to assume autonomy and ownership over their health care. And so those two things can really end up at odds with one another. And navigating that dynamic is one of the biggest challenges, I think, as a behavioral health professional in corrections. But it also presents one of the greatest opportunities because if we're able to articulate to our partners in the departments of corrections and in custody about how the system can evolve that can create a safer environment based on addressing behavioral health needs, we're doing a tremendous service not just to our patients, but also to uh, custody staff because they can stay safer as well. There's kind of a misnomer in the industry that safety and security are the same thing, but they're not. You can lock somebody in their cell. They may have a mental disorder, and you can lock them in their cell, and you can leave them there, and they will be secure. They're not getting out. But that doesn't mean that they're safe because that mental disorder can be worsened by that isolation. And so they may engage in behaviors that can uh, affect their wellness. Maybe they'll self-injure or they'll stop eating or they'll have what we call psychiatric decompensation, meaning their symptoms get much worse. And so that person is not safe, but they're secure. So we really have to look at those as two separate things. And by utilizing our understanding of behavioral health and communicating it to our custody partners in a way that makes sense to them. Hopefully we can support not just the security needs, but also the safety needs. I really understand what you're saying about safety and security because it seems that when someone is safe, it's only something you can see visually with your eyes, but you don't know what's going on in somebody's head. So you need to make sure that they're getting the care that you're providing, which is super important to these patients. Sure. And you can also look at it as the difference between risk and hazard. Or we work in a risky setting. It's everywhere. But we try to mitigate that risk by understanding what the hazards may be. What are the things that might amplify it that we don't recognize? And how can we mitigate that in a way that supports safety and security? For example, For our behavioral health patients, being in a crowded setting may be a risk, and we can mitigate that risk by reducing the number of people around them, having smaller units for behavioral health patients. But then there might be hazards for unique patients like uh, risk of isolation or, uh, uh, you know, psychiatric decompensation when they withdraw. And so we have to be able to manage not just the environmental risks, but the unique hazards as well for patients. Dr. Waters, what would you say is the most important part of your job? 
That's a tough question. Um, so I would say probably the most difficult part of my job is twofold. One is understanding and managing this concept of dual loyalty. And I touched on that a little bit already, but that's the confrontation of the security needs that are managed dominantly by uh, the correction staff and the healthcare needs, which are managed by us. That means that there are potentially two competing missions happening within the same space. And we really kind of have to think about this like a Venn diagram. If uh, security is one of those circles and healthcare is another one of those circles, there almost always is an overlap of those two. And it takes a lot of work to find that overlapping space sometimes. And we can end up at odds with one another if we don't work collaboratively to find that overlapping space because the tension between security and healthcare can be immense. We have to be able to support both needs without abdicating our responsibility to advocate for our patients' healthcare. So that's one of the major challenges that I think we face. Uh, another is ensuring that we're equipping our staff with the resources that they need to do the job day in, day out. And I'm not talking about just physical resources, but also psychological resources in terms of support and supervision. This is incredibly taxing work. I know from my own experience coming up through the ranks in correctional health care that when I was on the front line, I would go through serious periods of burnout. And I didn't really know how to recover from that. And having an infrastructure in place that allows staff to develop quality peer relationships that are incredibly inoculating against burnout, but that also fostering the kinds of supervisory relationships where they can turn to their superior and discuss strategies to manage it is so important. And I hope that we can continue to foster our staff's resilience, and I consider it a responsibility of mine within the Behavioral Health Service to come up with ways to do that. You mentioned burnout. How do you recharge after a tough, you know, week or month or even just a day of work? Well, I like to joke that I have a corner office, uh, which really means that, you know, in my 600-square-foot apartment here in Brooklyn, the corner of my living room that has no windows is my office. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the workday, I just I have to pack that office away. Uh, it sits behind the doors that open up into my living room. And so I keep those doors open when I'm working, and I close them when I'm done with my day. And my office almost disappears behind that. And so I have to have that physical separation because working from home, first of all, makes it very hard to maintain boundaries between work life and professional life. And so having a way to sort of create that physical separation is the first thing that's been really important for me. Uh, secondly, I practice mindfulness. I, I wish I could say I did it as regularly as I aim to. I don't, but it is an incredibly important tool for me to just manage my stress level, orient myself to what's most important, and be present for the ones that I love at the end of the workday. And so, you know, tools like that and also just having a good social support network here in my neighborhood has been really important. And everybody's, everybody's self-care needs and, and responses are going to be different and unique to them. But for me, physical separation, a good social support network, and practicing mindfulness have been really, really important and useful. 
I'm sure you're up to date on all of the tips on how to keep your mind, <laughs> your mind right. So I appreciate you saying that because I'm sure there's many other people listening that probably do work from home that need to understand how to separate themselves from their professional and personal life. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to also ask, was there ever a time that you were dealing with a patient that you felt was out of control while you were working in the mental health space? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there were, there've been over the course of a decade, there've been a number of times where uh, I've been confronted with moments where I wasn't sure if I was safe and it's an incredible thing to realize that because as a psychologist, you know, I went through 10 years of college and uh, you know, we were really prepared to treat patients in a outpatient setting and even around inpatient rotations and inpatient work, we didn't have the training around crisis management. That being said, when I first started in correctional healthcare, I was working in managing uh, the provision of mental health services on two units of solitary confinement for patients who had mental disorders, including serious mental illness. And I remember there being, and I'm gonna change some of the details of the case just to maintain confidentiality, but I remember there being one patient in particular who was so challenging. He was getting an at least weekly use of force with corrections officers where he was routinely hurting the officers, but he was also getting injured. He also had a history of extorting the other patients on the unit. Uh, he would smear feces in his cell, and it was just a really, really toxic setting. And as the supervisor of the unit, it was my responsibility to understand what was going on and come up with a treatment plan. And so I brought that patient into the consultation room and began to evaluate him. And I was asking increasingly personal questions during the process, trying to get at the root of the behavior. But I was totally misattuned to the patient. I wasn't understanding that he was feeling pressured and he was losing control during the process. Instead, I was just trying to meet my own needs of figuring out the problem. And eventually, as his agitation grew, he stood up, made a fist, and stood over me and said, Doc, how would you feel if I punched you in the face right now? And I can tell you, in that moment, my heart was racing. I froze because I wasn't smart about setting up the room in a safe way. He was actually standing between me and the door. And so I was blocked in the room and I thought, this is it. I've only been doing this for about nine months and this is it. Fortunately, there was a corrections officer who witnessed what was going on and came in and, and secured the patient, took him back to his cell. And I had some time to kind of calm down after that. And uh, it took a little while, but after about 20 minutes, I, was able to reapproach the patient and say, hey, listen, I understand what happened there. I really took control away from you while I was asking those increasingly personal questions. I wasn't appreciating how it was making you feel. And I imagine it really kind of made you feel helpless. And uh, he agreed. And from that point, there was an incredible transition in our work together. And we were able to develop a treatment plan for this patient that didn't eliminate the behaviors that we were worried about, but it drastically reduced it. And that's often what we're after. We can't change a lifetime of patterns overnight, but we can try to increasingly create more distance between each successive incidence of uh, uh, dangerous behavior. 
we were able to do that in this case, which meant that officers weren't getting hurt as frequently, and the patient wasn't getting hurt as frequently either, and his, his time in segregation wasn't uh, increasing. It was actually beginning to decrease. So it was a situation that felt incredibly risky and really scary that we were able to transform into something therapeutic eventually. But that was also a real learning experience for me that, you know, I have to really stay attuned to my patient's needs and just not focus on my own. Where do you see the future of correctional health care, we'll say, in the next five years? Well, I think we've been on, uh, on a really positive trajectory for about the past decade. You know, this landscape historically has been veiled. Uh, there hasn't been much access by the public or by the media in correctional institutions until about the past decade. And uh, uh, during that span, we've really started to understand that correctional institutions are now our default mental hospitals. And that means that we've started to see more focus on programming. We've started to see more focus on transitioning these patients effectively back into the community with the services that they need. Uh, and so I, I, I'm really hopeful that that trajectory is going to continue. There's a really wonderful initiative that's uh, taken root nationally called the Stepping Up Initiative. And that's all about how communities can adopt certain principles to reduce reliance on incarceration for the seriously mentally ill. And when necessary, that we're treating the seriously mentally ill uh, in jails and prisons in a way that fosters their wellness and equips them better to manage uh, the community upon their return. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic that that trend will continue. And if we see that, my hope is that we can really reinforce the type of programming that our patients receive while incarcerated and also bolster some of the community resources that they need when we go home. That is a great next step. I, that's awesome that, especially that you are aware and are willing to help with that. So thanks, thank you for sharing that. Dr. Waters, could you tell me what's the best thing that's happened to you this year so far? The best thing that's happened to me this year so far? Yeah. Well, uh, actually just over the 4th of July weekend, uh, I was privileged to be the officiant in my oldest friend's wedding. Wow. So this is somebody that I've known since I was six years old. He was seven years old. We lived on the same block in our little rural town in Michigan and uh, uh, have been best friends for the past 30 plus years. And we all met out in Portland, Oregon over the 4th of July weekend. And I was the officiant for his wedding. It was an incredible experience. And I couldn't be prouder and feel more privileged to have been a part of it. That's awesome. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Well, Dr. Waters, this concludes our interview. I really appreciate all of your insight, and you have a lot of great personal experience, especially your story about how you entered corrections. I think that's really inspiring to somebody that maybe hadn't thought about taking bad things and controlling them and making them you know, positive. And obviously, you've climbed the ladder up to your current position as a senior vice president, so you're a very successful person, and we appreciate all of your insight and your information and your time, of course. Sure, and I would just like to say that, that my success as an individual is really a reflection of the success of the teams I've been a part of, and I always feel very privileged to work with inspiring, mission-driven personnel, and that's really what I've seen within our, our network here at Horizon, and I hope I can reinforce that over the years. Perfect. Thank you so much, Doctor. You bet. Bye-bye.
Tune in next week for another episode of Horizon Radio. For more information, visit horizonhealth.com.